Hello and welcome to episode number 40 of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Chris Tripodi at DraftAnalyst.com. I'm joined by Tony Pauline as we discuss all the latest news related to NFL free agency and NFL combine preparation. We'll also have some thoughts on this week's film work from the Big 12. But Tony, we'll start this week in Denver. ESPN had a recent story that stated this offseason is John Elway's most important one since he took over in 2011. Obviously, that offseason, he signed Peyton Manning, allowed him to kind of avoid having to hit on quarterbacks in the draft, really got to ignore that position. And he actually hit nicely on several picks from 2012 to 2014. Guys like Derek Wolf, Danny Trevathan, and Malik Jackson in 2012, Bradley Roby and Matt Paradise in 2014. But the last three years, they haven't been as fruitful for Denver in the draft. Drafting Paxton Lynch put them in the position they are now, under center, where they're going through the likes of Case Keenum and Joe Flacco to try to win games. They've undergone consecutive losing seasons for the first time since the 70s. What's the feeling within the league about the Broncos and specifically Elway as a GM? You know, quick story, Chris. On the first Sunday of October last season, I was in the stadium as the New York Jets, or when the New York Jets beat the Denver Broncos 34-16, to and they really beat them up pretty badly. And one thing stood out to me. How awful Case Keenum looked during the game. I couldn't believe that this was the same quarterback who brought the Minnesota Vikings to the NFC title game less than nine months earlier. So during the game, I was texting back and forth with a buddy in the league as to what I was seeing. And he made a statement that really caught me off guard. He told me, Elway can't evaluate quarterbacks, which was something that I found, you know, tough to stomach, knowing the type of quarterback Elway was. Honestly, I was in shock. But when I spoke with more and more people about it, They not only believe the statement that my buddy had sent to me was true, but they also feel that Elway may be over his head in general player evaluations. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Broncos have all but finalized a trade with Baltimore, giving up one of their two fourth-round picks this year for quarterback Joe Flacco. The only thing preventing it from being official is that we're a few weeks away from the start of the league year in mid-March. Tony, does this move make any sense to you? You know, not really. Well, I think a change of scenery is needed for Flacco. I'm not sure Denver is the best place given the environment and the situation. Now, go back to my Shrine Game notes at draftanalyst.com from Monday, January 15th, the first night I was in St. Petersburg, when I named the Broncos as one of three teams very interested in Flacco. What I learned is Elway was also very interested in acquiring Nick Foles, but did not want to wait for that entire saga to play out, so he jumped at the chance to get Flacco when he could. Now, where there's smoke, there's often fire, and there has been lots of smoke about Elway having significant interest in Missouri's Drew Locke. Do you think Elway and the Broncos still take a quarterback with the 10th pick in the draft with Flacco now on board, or might they look in a different direction? You know, right now, I think quarterback is still the prime target, as is tight end. And I'm going to reiterate what I said on our podcast several weeks ago. Everything I've heard since attending Shrine Game practices is Elway loves Drew Locke of Missouri. Last week, we talked about Le'Veon Bell and where he may wind up in free agency. The Steelers recently announced that they won't tag Bell with either the franchise tag or the transition tag this offseason. So he's going to officially hit the free agent market as expected. On the show last week, you mentioned it was the Indianapolis Colts rather than the New York Jets that seemed to be the team most interested in Bell and that it could end up coming down to the size of the contract that Bell wants. Do you have any updates on the situation? 
Yeah, people I've talked to since last week tell me that Colts general manager Chris Ballard really wants to build that locker room. And they obviously already feel they have a real team guy and a leader in the locker room with Andrew Locke. So it's coming down to a matter of whether or not Ballard believes Bell will be a good addition to the locker room. It'll also come down to whether Ballard wants to pay Le'Veon Bell anywhere near the $48 million over the first three years of the contract that Bell is reportedly requesting. You're, you're right about you're right about that, Chris. And we talked about that. You know, do the Colts want to spend that amount of money uh, on a big free agent? I do know that they want to approach some of the bigger names, uh, some of the better pass rushers in the free agent market. They may do that instead of uh, going after Bell. That's a nice segue here because we have talked several times about the talented pass rushers in free agency this offseason. D. Ford of the Chiefs is near the top of that list. Most reports do indicate that Ford will get hit with the franchise tag. He's even come out and said he'd be willing to play on the tag, which not every player says in his situation. Are you hearing anything different out of Kansas City? Not at all. Everyone I've spoken with uh, believe that the Chiefs will place the franchise tag on Ford uh, by the March 5th deadline, and he won't make it to the free agent market. Now, Tony, what positions may Kansas City target in the draft? It's a little early, but everything I hear is Kansas City will target a safety in round one, which should not come as a surprise to anybody. The name that continues to pop up as a Chiefs target is Taylor Rapp of Washington. The question is whether Rapp makes it to the 29th pick or do the Chiefs move up to select a junior? Now let's turn our attention to the tight ends in free agency. During a podcast we recorded last November, you mentioned that NFL teams expected the tight ends to be overdrafted in April due to the general need at the position. Now that was before we got a surge of talent from the underclassmen. This year's draft class is now starting to cause some excitement at the tight end position. Could change the perception of players being overdrafted a bit, but we'll stick with the free agents for now. Looking at the crop of players available, Jared Cook of the Raiders is probably the top option at the position, but he'll be 32 in April. Tyler Eifert is another guy who has a ton of talent, but really just can't stay healthy. Probably averages about a touchdown per game when he's on the field, but if you only get five to six games out of him, that's not what you want when you're making a splash in free agency. Have you been hearing about any surprises we might see from the tight end market in free agency? You know, if there's one tight end who gets a big contract that turns heads, it's likely to be Jesse James of the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm told the team would like to re-sign James, but he presently sits behind Vance McDonald on the Steelers' depth chart, and staying with Pittsburgh is not a career move that James would want. Presently, I'm told that the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Buffalo Bills are two teams very interested in James once he hits the open market. Now, we'll shift away from free agency here and move to some combine talk. A player that we've mentioned often on this podcast since we started four months ago is pass rusher Max Crosby of Eastern Michigan. Tony, what's the latest on Crosby's combine prep? I'm told Crosby has looked really good in trading. They expect him to be at or near 260 pounds when he weighs in at the combine, which is almost 20 pounds heavier than his playing weight. He's going to time around 4.6 seconds in the 40 and complete at least 25 reps on the bench. If Crosby hits those marks, I think he locks himself into the late part of the draft second day. Now let's talk about two injured skill players from the Big 12, running back Rodney Anderson of Oklahoma and receiver Jalen Hurd of Baylor. Anderson suffered a season-ending injury in early September against UCLA. Hurd also has a knee issue. He underwent a procedure in early December, missed the Bears' bowl game, also missed senior bowl week. How are these two progressing in their rehabs, Tony? You know, first on Anderson, he'll be at the combine, but is still not ready to work out. I'm told he's progressing really well and hopes to complete a pro day in April just before the draft. I'm told as of now, 
Hurd is expected to work out at the draft, barring a last-minute setback. His injury was a lot less severe than Anderson's, and from what I was told, it was basically a meniscus that required cleanup. Now, obviously, Hurd was once a running back at Tennessee, switched positions at Baylor. At what position does the NFL view him currently? Everything I hear is receiver, receiver, receiver. Some people think you may be able to line him up in the backfield on occasion, but not on a full-time basis. Personally, I really believe that Hurd can eventually grow into a move tight end. I want to see what his measurables are at the Combine. Off his junior timing day, he was listed at six foot four, 225 pounds. And if you watch him on film, he looks skinny on the field at that size, which tells me he's likely to get bigger. I also base my tight end projection on the way he plays the game. Not overly quick, but a good pass catcher. I can tell you this. The Oakland Raiders really like Hurd at receiver, and they presently have a big need at the position. Wrapping up some player and injury news here in the lead-up to the Combine, we'll look at Chase Winovich out of Michigan. He delayed ankle surgery to play in the Peach Bowl against Florida, had seven tackles, one sack, and two and a half tackles for loss in that game. So that's pretty good not playing at 100%. He then underwent the surgery and missed Senior Bowl week. Are there any updates on his progress? Yeah, it was also an ACL that required surgery on Winovich. Now, I'm told he intends on bench pressing at the Combine, and he hopes to run a 40 sometime in April, sometime before the draft. Now, we'll get to recent film from the Big 12 in just a moment. But before that, please support the Draft Analysts by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any of the big podcast platforms. You can also find us at Believe.com. Leave a rating and a review. And if you have any questions you want answered on the show, tweet to us at Chris Tripodi, at Tony Pauline, at Draft Analyst One, and at Believe Podcasts to get in touch with the show as well. Now, Tony, let's start at the top of the Big 12, alphabetically at least, and begin with Baylor. Earlier we spoke about Jalen Hurd. Does anyone else on the Bears intrigue you? Yeah, their cornerback, Derek Thomas. He's got outstanding size at six foot three, 191 pounds. He's got solid ball skills, does a terrific job tracking the pass in the air. And he's one of the few college cornerbacks that gets his head back around and shows the ability to make plays when his back is to the ball. He's also very physical in all aspects. My concern about Thomas is his deep speed. He plays to the 4.5540 that scouts estimated him to run coming into the season, but I'm told he's going to run much faster at the combine. Some have said 4.4 flat in the 40. Some people even believe he can get under 4.4 seconds and get in the high 4.3s. If Thomas does that, that changes a lot for him. Moving to Iowa State, where the two big names on the Cyclones roster are skilled players, running back David Montgomery, and receiver Hakeem Butler. What did you see from those two on film? You know, Montgomery's not the greatest athlete. I'm not expecting great testing results from him at the Combine, but he's a bigger back who plays smart, tough football, and he's just a real good football player on film. He grinds it out on the inside. He shows great vision. He does a terrific job using his blocks. He'll pick and choose his way through the traffic. He's a terrific pass catcher out of the backfield, and he does an outstanding job as a blocker. He's really a three-down player that I think is going to be a steal in the second round. As far as Butler's concerned, I have my concerns about him. You know, he makes all these incredible catches on film that people go crazy over, and they love him, and they say first round. But the fact is, he can't separate. He doesn't separate off the line. He doesn't separate through his route running. He doesn't separate down the field. He shows really little in the way of quickness, and he's more of a loping athlete and the fact is this as we've talked about multiple times you know the bigger receivers have to show that they can do more than just win out for the contested passes and grab the 50 50 balls you know butler on film really doesn't show that 
the combine, his testing numbers at the combine are going to be very important. I'm with you on both of those guys. I really like David Montgomery. Again, not going to test very well. We don't expect him to test well. So when he doesn't at the combine, some people might get worried. We really shouldn't because he's a guy who consistently beats first contact. The Iowa State offensive line really wasn't all that great. He avoided a lot of losses, turned you know one or two yard losses into four or five yard gains, which they don't look awesome on the score sheet. He's not putting up monster numbers, but he's a guy down in, down out, who's going to produce for you. He's also adept at pass blocking, and he can catch passes out of the backfield. So as you said, he's a complete back and really a guy who, despite that general lack of athleticism, has the necessary size and skill set to be a feature back. With Butler, when I watched him, I expected to see a little bit more. Uh, I agree with you completely on the fact that he looks like a loping athlete, even when he's creating yards after the catch. He's not doing it with quick, twitchy athleticism. He's doing it strictly with the fact that he is just a long-limbed athlete. I mean, he's 6'6", 225 pounds, obviously does show some ability in contested situations, high-pointing passes, going up and coming down with those balls. But I also saw a lot of drops on his film as well. And while for me it's not a technical issue with him as far as his technique when he comes to catching the football, I do have similar concerns about how he's going to separate at the NFL level and whether he's going to be able to consistently get open rather than just being a guy you throw the ball up to and hope he comes down with it. And, you know, people will say, well, isn't that a bit of a contradiction? You're saying Montgomery is going to be a good player, even though he's not a good athlete, but Butler's not going to be that good of a player or he's overrated because he's not that good of an athlete. He's not quick. You know, the difference is Montgomery just shows a sixth sense on the field when the ball's in his hands. He knows where his blocks are. He basically beats defenders mentally. He sets them up and beats them mentally and is able to get his sort of if we can say separation that way. He's not just a back who runs over defenders. He finds ways to run around them. Like I said, he'll pick and choose his spots on the inside. He just has that, you know, we talk about the quarterback with the it factor. When I watch Montgomery in the balls, in a sense, when I watch Montgomery on the field, Montgomery seems to have that it factor at the running back spot. Took the words right out of my mouth because I was going to compare Montgomery to what we often say about quarterbacks, where the instincts matter so much more than how athletic that player might be. Now, you need baseline athleticism. You need to hit certain thresholds, certainly. But when it comes to Hakeem Butler and wide receivers in general, defensive backs, guys like that, athleticism is very important. And you want to see a guy like Butler test well at the combine because he's going to face better athletes at the NFL level, and if he struggled to separate on his college film, what's that say about what's going to happen when he hits the next level? And people should know that was not rehearsed. We didn't go into this podcast knowing that we were going to say those lines, so there we go. Now, during our Shrine game coverage, Kansas's Daniel Wise was a name you mentioned often, thought he should have gotten a call-up to the Senior Bowl. Frankly, you thought he should have been at the Senior Bowl even before we started covering the Shrine game. Was his 2018 film as good as his 2017 film? The short answer is no. Uh, part of the problem was he was he was out of position at defensive end as Kansas often uh, ran a three-man line. And when he played defensive end, he was controlled at the point of attack. He showed no ability to rush the passer from the outside. The issue for Wise as he moves towards the combine uh, is he's being labeled as a three-technique tackle, albeit potentially a very good prospect at the three-technique position. But the problem is, is there are not too many defenses around the league that deploy a three-technique tackle, which I feel is going to hurt his draft stock. Moving on to Kansas State here, there's only really one name to mention, and boy, is it a polarizing name, offensive lineman Dalton Reisner. Besides seeing him all three days of senior bowl practice, 
You also watched a half dozen Kansas State game films. Obviously, you weren't really distracted by any other prospects, so you got to fully focus on what you saw, positive and negative, from Reisner. Now, some people grade him as a first-round prospect at tackle. In your most recent rankings, released today over at DraftAnalyst.com, you have him graded as a third-round guard. What gives? A couple of reasons. You know, let's start with the positives. I mean, he's a terrific run blocker who plays strong, nasty football. He shows good power. He moves defenders from the ball, from the line. And he's also not a bad position blocker in pass protection. Now, the issues that I see and what we saw during senior bowl week is he lacks footwork, he lacks agility, and he lacks range at tackle. On film, he gets very tall out of his stance and pass protection, and he doesn't use his angles well. I just don't see how he stays at tackle in the NFL, and there's not a huge market for marginally athletic guards in the draft. One thing I heard over and over and over at the Senior Bowl from scouts is, Reisner's a fifth-round talent who will be bumped up a round or two because of his tenaciousness and approach, and after watching the film, I agree. That's why I grade him as a third-round guard. Now, we'll stay in the trenches, and there's obviously a lot to talk about when we move to Oklahoma, far more than a school like Kansas State. We will start up front with right tackle Cody Ford and left tackle Bobby Evans. On most boards, Ford is rated much higher than Evans, but you disagree. Why is that, Tony? Yeah, absolutely. No, Ford is a good player. He's a large, dominant blocker who moves relatively well for a big offensive lineman. He annihilates opponents once he gets his hands on him. He plays with a nasty attitude. The question is, is... Can he play right tackle at the next level? I'm not so sure about that. I think he's got to move into guard. He could slide into the late part of round one, but I think he's a much better fit between picks 38 to 45. Evans impressed the heck out of me on film. He was not as dominant as his teammate because he's not as big, but he's still a terrific run blocker who moves opponents off the line. He shows ability blocking on the second level, and I was really impressed with his footwork and pass protection and his overall ability to slide out and protect Kyler Murray's blind side. I am convinced that Bobby Evans can play left tackle in the NFL more so than I am convinced that Cody Ford can play right tackle, which is why I don't see such a huge difference between the two players as many people do. Now, Tony, you mentioned Kyler Murray. Obviously, he's the big name in the draft out of the Sooners program this year. First things first, what's the latest you've heard since he's now officially committed to football? You know, there are still some teams that are concerned that if he doesn't quickly work out for Murray on the gridiron, he could do an about face and turn back to the baseball diamond. That is the opinion of more than one team that I've spoken with. How about the skills you saw on tape from Murray? You know, there's a lot to be excited about with Murray on the field. And at the same time, there's much to be concerned about when you break down the, the game film. You know, the positives... Number one, he's a terrific athlete. He can improvise when things break down. He just finds ways to make plays. His playmaking ability, his poise and his patience was unbelievable, especially for a first-year starter. He sat in the pocket and really was not bothered by pressure. I saw times when the pocket was collapsing uh, on him from the right side, and he just stood there and delivered the ball. For the most part, he showed good field vision. He made terrific decisions. And his elusiveness and escapability, I got to tell you, is better than any top-tier quarterback that I I've scouted in the past 22 years. Uh, he j- he's just able to elude defenders, and he doesn't take off up the field. He's not a run-first quarterback. He will sit in the pocket as long as necessary until everything breaks down, and the only time he will leave is when there's no options open to him to throw the ball or it's a design run. And I think that elusiveness and his ability to create in the backfield with his feet is going to enable a creative offensive coordinator to put plays in the playbook that 
they can't do with an ordinary quarterback. Sort of the way Kansas City was able to put additional plays in the playbook for Patrick Mahomes because of his strong arm. Those are the positives. The negatives are the size and the stature. You know, people say, well, Drew Brees was was 5'11", Russell Wilson's 5'10". Kyler Murray's not as stocky as those guys. Drew Brees was a wide, broad guy who can take a pounding. I don't think it's going to be the same situation with Kyler Murray. He has a very thin body of work. I'm concerned with his accuracy and his pass placement and his ability to throw receivers free. What do I mean by that? People are going to say, well, he completed 70% of his throws. But if you really watch the film, he wasn't leading receivers with the pass. They were having to adjust to get the ball. Even when they were wide open, they have to leave their feet to get the ball. So what may happen is, or what it looks like is early on you're going to have a lot of Murray's passes could be contested throws I'm also concerned about the deep ball and his deep arm and I want to see him throw at the combine why do I say that go back and if you watch any of his games go back this happened several times but watch the big 12 title game against Texas where Marquis Brown the receiver was streaking down the middle of the field had a three or four step lead on his defensive back and had to either slow up or even stop in his route to wait for the deep pass to get to him. Now you can say, well, you know what? Marquis Brown is the guy who's probably going to run in the low four twos if he was ever going to be able to run before the combine. That's unlikely to happen because of the list Frank injury in his foot. But the fact is you have to be able to make that throw on the next level. So right now I question his deep arm until further notice or until I see differently during the combine over a pro day workout. And correct me if I heard you wrong here, but I believe your issue isn't with arm strength or the fact that he can make a throw 50 to 60 yards down the field, because I think we both know that he has that kind of arm, sort of like a Russell Wilson, a shorter guy who just has a cannon. But your issue is more on the anticipatory side and the ability to throw his receivers open. I am absolutely concerned with the latter. I mean, does he have a, the arm to throw the ball 50 or 60 yards down the field with speed? I don't know. And again, I say, go back and look at that Big 12 uh, championship game against Texas where Marquis Brown was slowing up in the routes and waiting for the pass to get to him. Now, it could also be a situation, you know, which trajectory where, you know, he's putting too much air on the ball, which is taking it, which makes it take a while to get down the field. Again, want to see all of that, you know, uh, they call the combine the underwear Olympics, and, and that's exactly what it is. But but you do get to see these sorts of things with the quarterbacks. Absolutely. And, and with me, when it comes to Murray, you mentioned all those positives. For me, it's the instincts again. We talked about it with David Montgomery. You look at Kyler Murray, you watch him, and you say, I trust this guy with the ball in his hands to make the right decision, to get the ball to the playmakers, to come up clutch in the fourth quarter when you need a big drive. Now, the concerns are very real. Obviously, he's short. As you mentioned, he's thin he does do a good job of avoiding hits. He doesn't really take big hits from linebackers when he's scrambling. He doesn't take big hits in the pocket, which is a big positive for him. But he's also working with an all-world offensive line, arguably the best offensive line in college football. One concern for me, and this is something that's kind of been seen with Russell Wilson at the NFL level, is the fact that Russell Wilson has to drop a little bit deeper in the pocket than most quarterbacks because of his height. It doesn't affect him in the standard ways that people would expect. Oh, he gets passes batted down on the line. He can't see over his offensive linemen. No, but he has to drop back a little bit further, which affects your pass protection. It makes your tackles have to cover a wider area to prevent guys from getting the edge. So that's a concern that a lot of people don't understand or don't look at when it comes to a shorter quarterback. But for me, that's a big thing with Kyler Murray is does he go to a team that is going to be able to protect him because, as we've seen in Seattle, 
they've had their issues surrounding Russell Wilson with talent on the offensive line, and he is one of the most sacked quarterbacks in the NFL. Listen, whatever team Murray goes to, they're going to have to build a system around him. He's not a plug-and-play type of quarterback the way Dwayne Haskins is, the way Daniel Jones is, the way some of the quarterbacks from last year. You're going to have to implement a system. I will say one thing on his behalf. When you scout quarterbacks, the shorter guys, you can tell if they're having difficulty seeing over their offensive linemen. I didn't get that sense uh, when I watched Murray. I got the sense that he was able to see the field, whether it's between the gaps or, or whatever the situation is. It's probably part of the fact that his baseball background probably helps him. You know, the, being a mature athlete probably helps him uh, in that sense. But the fact is this, is whatever team he goes to, whatever franchise he ends up with, they're going to have to change their system and change their offense to tailor make it to him. Absolutely. Doesn't mean he can't be successful, but certainly means that you can't, as you said, plug him into a system and say, go. You need to work with the talent around you. And in the end, that's good coaching. If he winds up in a situation like that, he can definitely be successful. Now, Oklahoma State, moving along from the Sooners here, the Cowboys will be led by underclassmen in this year's draft. Who surprised you the most on film when you were watching, Tony? Yeah, that would be receiver Tyron Johnson. I, I was really impressed by him. An excellent pass catcher who's got a good feel for the game. He's listed at six foot one, 190 pounds, but he really looks a little bit small. And I really want to see what his true con- uh, computer numbers are before stamping a, stamping a final grade on him. Regardless, he looks like a potential fourth or fifth receiver at the next level. Moving along to the state of Texas now, which player do you think could be the biggest surprise out of TCU? That would be linebacker Ty Summers. You know, both of their defensive line and their pass rushes were at the Senior Bowl. But on film, I was really impressed with Summers because he looked much improved uh, on the film from 2018 compared to what it was in 2017. And he's really starting to apply his athleticism on the field. He shows tremendous range on the field. He gets incredible depth on his pass drops. But he's also fast and fierce up the field. Right now, I'm hearing there's a very good chance that Summers is going to run in the low four fives in the 40 at the Combine. On to the Longhorns here, staying in the Lone Star State. Numerous times this season, we've spoken about defensive end Charles Amenihu from the middle of the season through his senior bowl appearance. He's come up several times. What was your final analysis after watching the tape on the long defensive end? It was basically similar to what I thought going into watching the film. You know, he's a solid 4-3 defensive end who must physically mature and get bigger. He's a nice pass rusher, but he's by no means a dominant edge rusher. He gives effort against the run, but lacks bulk and gets controlled at the point by blocks. You know, he makes a lot of plays with his heart and his head, and as he gets stronger, he's only going to become a better player. A man who really did take a massive leap this year compared to where he was in 2017, led the Big 12 in sacks, second in tackles for loss, really had more pass rush production this year than he had in his entire career combined heading into the season, which is certainly good to see. You want players to be improving year by year, especially going into their final year in college. He has that great length I mentioned, the upside to potentially outproduce his likely draft slot if everything clicks. We'll move to the other side of the ball now for the Longhorns. There was one guy who's kind of a literal no-name in scouting circles who really impressed you, Tony. Who am I talking about? Yeah, that would be Calvin Anderson, the left tackle who was a graduate transfer from Rice. He looked really good at the left tackle spot. Showed enough footwork and agility to protect the edge. I like the way he used his angles and his body positioning. Height may be an issue, but again, you know, Anderson was someone who was not even on the scouting radar when the season started, and he could now sneak into the late rounds. We'll finish up here with the West Virginia Mountaineers, and like the Longhorns, they had a no-name who impressed you up front, Tony. Who are you looking at here? 
Kenny Bigelow Jr., another graduate transfer and a six-year senior who played at USC before transferring to West Virginia. He's a tough, slug-it-out nose tackle who consistently holds the point of attack and occupies blockers and occasionally makes plays. I think like Calvin Anderson of uh, Texas, Bigelow could sneak into the late rounds, and at the very worst, he's going to end up on the practice squad this fall if he passes medicals because he has had some of the issues in the past. Now, lastly, what were your thoughts on Yadni Kajus, the guy we've mentioned a few times and usually in conjunction with his teammate, Colton McKivitz? I still think McKivitz is the better tackle, but I was impressed by what I got with Kajus. You know, he's not a fluid or quick left tackle that can slide out and cover a lot of area, but he's strong. He's got a nice build. He fights through the whistle. He does a great job with his angles. A terrific run blocker. More of a small area guy, which leads me to believe he may have to move to the right side because he doesn't show that great footwork. He's not really effective blocking in motion. But I I was impressed with him. I think he's going to be a guy who comes off the board with the top 15 selections in round two. And I think in the right system, he can start at the next level. And that's all for the 40th episode of The Draft Analysts, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. We'll be back next week with more news on the draft and free agency, with the combine creeping ever closer to us. So make sure you head over to draftanalyst.com for all the latest and check out our Big 12 rankings, which are up on the site now. For Tony Pauline... This is Chris Tricotti, and we'll talk to you soon.